Well, let's get started. Uh, thank you everyone for joining today. Uh, today I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Uh, Salva, or excuse me, Father, soon to be doctor, uh, <laughs> Father Salvatore uh, Enzo de Baracco. He's a passionist missionary um, that has worked for years and with whom I have worked for years in, in Haiti. Uh, for some background, he was born in Pittsburgh, but his family moved to Italy where he ultimately studied philosophy and theology at the Pontificio Ateneo Antonianum. And hopefully I didn't butcher that too much in, in Rome. And he was ordained a priest in 1996. He has a master's degree in moral theology and in human resources and a certificate in Catholic bioethics. And is currently a healthcare PhD student at Duquesne University in, in uh, Pittsburgh. He's held various positions with the Passionist Order, serving for eight years as Secretary to the Superior General for two terms as uh, Provincial Superior of the Passionists in Italy and in Brazil. And, um, and during his time as Provincial Superior, he worked with the community of St. Uh, Egidio in one of the peripheries of Naples, Italy, and uh, that was for the disabled and marginalized. In 2014, he joined uh, Father Rick Frechette's efforts. Um, and Father Rick, um, many of you may know, is the founder of St. Luke Foundation in, in Haiti. And while there, he's worked with the marginalized of the slum of City Soleil, serving as chaplain of the St. Luke Hospital and doing pastoral outreach and throughout the remote areas of the country has been heavily involved. He has been particularly involved uh, in the hurricane relief in the province of uh, Jeremy, um, where the Hurricane Matthew caused major damage in, in 2016. And um, he uh, currently serves with uh, three priests, two novices, and 15 aspirants in, in the community uh, in Haiti of Passionists. And, and a couple years ago, Father Enzo was elected as Vice Provincial of the Passionist Province of St. Paul of the Cross. That includes Canada, Eastern USA, Puerto Rico and Haiti. And um, I've worked personally with uh, him for years in Haiti and his commitment to the community there is really nothing short of remarkable. He's been an inspiration to all of us that have uh, been involved and I'm very pleased that he can shed his insight um, uh, for us uh, during this um, very timely uh, talk that addresses uh, uh, utilization and um, prioritizing uh, limited resources in um, in such an environment in which we're faced now with COVID. So thank you, Dr. Uh, Father Enzo. Thank you, Dr. Michael. Um, uh, hello, everyone. Um, I, I wish I could. Uh, uh, the intention was to be there physically, but uh, with the social distancing, uh, that has not been possible. Uh, but thank God we have these means of communication. Um, I hope it will have the same effectiveness and being an Italian, so I'm kind of like used to be in contact with people, um, but uh, we'll, I'll try to do my best. Um, mm -hmm. Dr. Michael already introduced me, and uh, so you already know my name. Uh, just want us to say peace to everyone, but let's go to our talk and kind of put it already into context. Um, we're living this coronavirus disease, um, which you better than I do know what causes. Um, and um, I'm not going to go into all the specifics, but just to remind us like what this all caused. 
this coronavirus. Uh, we know that it started in China and then it spread worldwide, uh, reaching a pandemic level. Uh, and COVID-19 has triggered enormous human casualties and serious economic loss, uh, posing a global threat and is overwhelming healthcare infrastructures all over the globe and affecting also uh, the economies um, in a very, uh, I would say, uh, terrible way uh, to the point that uh, there is a fear that after this pandemic, uh, the next um, uh, problem will be um, hunger in the world. This is uh, just a map that I downloaded yesterday and it shows how it's spread and how it's spreading. As you can see, it's, you know, no borders or walls can stop the propagation of this, uh, of this disease. Uh, we can contain a little bit with our social distancing, but although I prefer to, to call it more physical distancing and I'll tell you why. Uh, the pervasiveness of this pandemic calls into question aspects of our way of life that we have been talking, taking for granted. Um, and we found ourselves socially and technically unprepared for the spread of this contagion. Uh, although many have been talking about the possibility of the pandemic, that we should have been prepared, but it's a matter of fact that it caught us all unprepared. Uh, this pandemic is also causing an ex existential destabilization with similar unpreparedness with respect to the recognition of our physical, cultural, political, and I would say even financial vulnerability in the face of the phenomenon. And this destabilization is beyond the reach of science and of the technology of therapeutic devices. A more responsive reflection about the meaning and values of humanism has the same urgency as research on pharmaceuticals and vaccines. A lot of people are posing very uh, existential questions in this moment. And one thing that this virus, I think, reveals to us, and I'm talking as the priest now, uh, I think that it re reveals um, how we are all vulnerable. Uh, we are all touched in one way or the other. Even if you're asymptomatic, still it's affecting you because you can risk to be contagious, uh, con uh, to infect others. Um, it's, it's, no one is not affected in some way by this virus. And I just show some pictures of how it is affecting. This was a famous picture that's been going all over the world of a nurse in, in Italy, uh, how tired she is, exhausted. On Hardy Island, just across the bay from where I live, um, people are being buried in mass graves. Uh, the reason why they're being buried in mass graves is because um, uh, they're not claimed and the reason why they're not claimed are several most of all this this virus is really uh, i would say revealing uh, a sickness of our society that has always been there but we never knew about it or we forgot about it and many times these people who are not claimed are people who unfortunately are undocumented so their families are afraid to claim them there are people who are homeless who have no families and uh, there are other, so many other situations. It's affecting our economy. And we all know that. It's affecting also the way we've been living religion, spirituality. Uh, this image of the Pope was walking 
alone in, in St. Peter's Square for the prayer on 27th March and um, kind of reflecting on the gospel of the apostles together with Jesus in the boat when a storm came. These were, were his words. For weeks now it has been evening. Thick darkness has gathered over our squares, our streets, and our cities. It has taken over our lives, filling everything with a deafening silence and a distressing void that stops everything as it passes by. We feel it in the air. We know this in people's gestures. Their glances give them away. We find ourselves afraid and lost. The moment that we are living makes us pause and ponder and wonder what is happening and why this is happening. And there is a risk in these moments to search either for a God or someone to blame or to think that this could be a curse. I believe instead it's something to look at differently from a different perspective in order to try to understand it. Because in times like these, we realize that it's no more just about me my body, my will, my dream, my pocket, my success, etc. But it's really all about us as a community. And when I say community, it's not just the human community, uh, us as like all of creation. Because we discover how we're all interconnected. No one escapes by by the infection of this virus. And in times like these, we realize that it's no more just, uh, as I said, about me, but it's about us as a body. Uh, We are not just um, the sum of individuals. Uh, We act like a body. And I put this picture here of the um, uh, anatomy of the bodies because uh, U.S. physicians and care healthcare givers, uh, you know better than I do how everything is connected in the body, how important is Uh, You know, a headache can be revealed from, you know, maybe too high blood pressure or you're dehydrated. It's all connected. Uh, One pain in one spot of the body can reveal the disease instead of in in another. And because of this interconnectedness, we have to study how it's all connected and how actually we should come together in harmony. In times like these, you realize that it's no more about me, but it's actually about us and what it means to be vulnerable. Uh, Vulnerable comes from the Latin um, vulnus, which means wounds. And in the scriptures, uh, John says that by his wounds, we are healed by the wounds of Christ. You know, better than I do, a vaccine, uh, when you discover a vaccine, it's like almost like poisoning kind of the person with that disease. So to build the immune system. When you're vulnerable, um, you are touched somehow. And our vulnerability is not just a physical vulnerability, it's a psychological, it's spiritual, it's emotional. And um, I'm noticing even by uh, visiting the nursing home here in the Bronx these days, how the healthcare staff is being infected in a certain way. Not necessarily negative, 
because it also can be positive. Um, seems almost like we're, we are rediscovering feelings that we kind of lost. We're discovering emotions that we thought weren't there. And uh, especially what is bothering us, uh, for me it's so interesting, especially after being in Haiti for more than six years, is how um, pain and suffering all of a sudden is making everyone stressed. Um, three quarters of the world live in that pain continuously. Three quarters of the world live in that suffering continuously. Three quarters of the world is vulnerable in the sense of truly wounded. Wounded materially, psychologically, physically, economically, socially. It's a wounded world. And we all know that when you have a fresh wound, usually you also say that that wound is tender. When the flesh is tender, it means that it's still, uh, it's, it's still fresh. And um, in the Bible, in the scriptures, there is a specific word that corresponds to a term uh, tenderness. Uh, it's the, it's the, um, the Hebrew term uh, rachum. Uh, but also, uh, if it's also uh, translated to as mercy and compassion. Um, and the root of the term raham is, which is has generated two other terms, the feminine rahem, that means womb, as the point of origin for all human and animal life, and the pearl ravamim, which is, are the bowels, that generally indicates the emotion of mercy, and indicates the soft place in the human being. Now, you're all physicians, and you know better than I do, that uh, when a woman is awaiting a life, there is a whole tenderness that, that starts to move. Um, actually, God's tenderness in the Bible is often compared to a mother who is pregnant. In fact, the uterus has the feature of making itself elastic, tender, in order to be able to expand in such a way as to welcome or allow the development of a new individual. And also the bony conformation of the female pelvis responds to the characteristic of reception. And the dilatation of the uterus corresponds to the withdrawal of the other bowels. It is a contraction to the allow the other to exist. Therefore, we can understand the death of the cross on the cross of Jesus. It's like he retracts in order for us to exist, to live. It's making space for the new life. It's making space for the other. And in this time of vulnerability, uh, we are really called to be tender. Because if we don't rediscover that tenderness, um, we, we won't really be able to be healed, in all honesty. And to be tender means that, yes, it, it's painful. A tender wound causes pain. And sometimes we, want, we don't want to deal with that pain. We don't want to deal with the pain of the others. But how can't you deal with the pain of the others in this moment as this virus is showing how we're all interconnected? How can we remain anesthetized? It's kind of a wake-up call that just happened. Now, in this COVID-19, 
that is happening, we start to see and uh, uh, notice, or, or I would say, uh, COVID-19 kind of reveals all sorts of values. News of life-saving ventilators being rationed, hospitals issuing blanket and do not resuscitate orders, politicians suggesting that some human lives are expendable in service of the economy, have highlighted the importance of an ethical framework for decision-making during the coronavirus pandemic. But is that enough? Uh, what happens to our values in extraordinary circumstances? Does this pandemic change everything? Is it because if it's an extraordinary time, so we just throw out the windows what we always believed because we have to adapt? In my opinion, circumstances do not dictate our ethical principles. Actually, uh, Dr. Salmesi, uh, professor at Georgetown University, uh, insists that we apply our ethical principles to whatever circumstance we encounter. And when the circumstances are extraordinary, we need our ethical principles even more. Because if we don't do that, the vulnerable, the poor, the homeless, the excluded, will continue to suffer the major consequences, will be those who will pay, continue to pay the higher price. So what are our values in ordinary circumstances, especially uh, for you as physicians? Um, first, the obligation to benefit patients, which means do not harm and do not do what does not benefit them. And the second is the obligation to respect patients as persons, respect them uh, as, moral, uh, as moral agents uh, in their, especially respect of their principle of autonomy. But what about extraordinary circumstances? What happens to the principle of autonomy? How can we still respect person, patients as moral agents? Uh, in times of overwhelming need and and scarce resources, uh, two other principles are very important, solidarity and justice. For, solid, by, for solidarity, uh, it means that we should respect the common good, not in a utilitarian way, but in integral, but in integral terms of interdependency. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, the common good as developed in uh, by the Catholic um, theology um, is, is not the utilitarian way of, of, of viewing it. The common good is actually the complete development of all the people of all the world. It's the sum total of conditions of social living whereby persons are enabled more fully and readily to achieve their own perfection. This is a definition by John 23rd. The idea therefore differs that of pursuing the greatest good for the greatest number. No individual is excluded by the common good. Actually, the common good can be described in terms of interdependency. Because we are interdependent, the common good is more like a multiplication sum rather than an additional one. Where if any number is zero, then the total is always zero. 
if anyone is not respected in their dignity, if anyone is left out and deprived of what is essential, then the common good has been betrayed. And a culture of solidarity should always prevail over a culture of waste, because when we care and cultivate creation, including the human person, when we share our resources, we all have enough. And then the principle also of justice, equity, we're all equal, not because of our age, our social status, we're all equal in our essence, in our being, with our dignity. And also to be fair, fair to all patients, but also fair towards the common good, towards society. And to better understand the, the principle of, of the common good in solidarity, uh, it's, it's, like, it's like the vaccine. Why do you give a vaccine? Why do you want to convince a person to have a vaccine? Because it's not just for that person. The benefit is not for the benefit of that person, it's the benefit for heaven, for, the, for everyone, not just for some. So we find ourselves fighting against COVID-19. And uh, to do this, uh, it, depend, it, it demands great virtue. Um, although this tiny virus, you cannot see it if not under um, a microscope, uh, it's something that is enormous. It seems like it's so big, and um, we have to be uh, we have to be ready ready to fight it. And but not alone. Uh, we need all to be virtuous together. Uh, that is the strength. That is our strength. Uh, the same way we are affected all together, all together we should come in order to fight it. But what can guide us? our virtues. We are called to be people with virtue. And I would just like to go and through the four cardinal virtues. Uh, I don't know if any of you have studied the philosophy or had encountered these, but the cardinal virtues are uh, really can help us guide us in certain situations because a lot of, in a lot of situations, you will not find the answer on books. You will not find the answers in, net, in, the, in the triage um, uh, comedy. You will not find answers written somewhere. Sometimes what will guide you is your conscience, and, you can, and the compass to guide this conscience are these four cardinal virtues that will help you get through things. Uh, what is the first cardinal virtue? Prudence which actually is practical wisdom. It's, it determines the mean of reason in all human actions and situations. You've studied, you've learned, but then you have to bring everything down to earth and make it become flesh. Your knowledge has to become flesh, not just technically, technically but also morally. So you have to act with wisdom. And, and that, is the, that is the virtue that we always need on how the good thinking can become practical. Uh, as physicians, you're called to be strong, fortitude, to, to have courage, physical courage and moral courage. Um, I'm thinking of all the physicians who have been infected or nurses who have put themselves at risk, putting themselves at risk their families 
with all the protections and uh, but there is a physical you put yourself you expose yourself you're exposing yourself physically let's face it despite all the protections you are physically exposing yourselves and that needs courage but also moral courage in the sense of doing the right thing and that requires courage and this courage is kind of a, it's it's a mean it's a mean between the reckless and the pusillanimous you know you have to be you have to have courage but without being reckless in the sense you know not not observing all the protocols at all or just to always close yourself and being afraid and being a coward and courage is not the absence of fear courage actually helps you overcome fear which is different and to be fearful is wise but not but don't allow fear to block you to stop you and the only thing that can help you overcome fear is love is tenderness in fact john says in his first letter in the new testament love casts out fear and then the virtue of of uh, temperance don't overtreat patience don't be greedy and keep a steady hand in these moments where everything is being overwhelmed uh you know there's there's, 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 there's when you're in a status of emergency and crisis i mean as emergency doctors and, and and nurses and also as icu doctors and nurses you're all used probably to be always in a state of emergency almost you're always at the borderline kind of so this is really not it's new in the sense that it's overwhelming but otherwise you've been dealing with this already and it's a it's about like um just a few days ago, talking with uh, Dr. Michael, uh, I love one thing that he said. It's about being, not just being uh, strong, but also smart. And you have to keep a steady hand. You have to be firm. You have to be cool in this moment. Because this is, these are moments in which we can overreact even with one another, hurt one another. And this is the moment instead that we have to keep a steady hand and keep things going. And the virtue of justice, treat patients equitably and fairly and don't waste resources. Uh, speaking with a few nurses uh, in these past days, um, friends of mine who are here in New York, uh, they were telling me that these days they're actually recalling times that they could have not just wasted resources that they did so many times gloves, gowns, masks. And it's making us realize instead how, you know, the resources that we have at our disposal are not just ours, but they belong even to others. It's part of the common good. And then the virtue of tenderness, here it comes. It's the call to understand, the call to oppose what hardens the hearts of human beings, such as an economy of exclusion, says Pope Francis, a culture of waste, a globalization of indifference that has made the human being incapable of feeling compassion at the outcry of the poor, weeping for other people's pain, the lack of real concern for human being, reducing them to one of his needs alone, consumption, a new idolatry of money that predominates over our societies the denial of the supremacy of the human being and inequality that generates violence. 
in this moment, you're all experiencing how uh, the patients, family members, loved ones, friends are not able to come to visit them. And in front of you, my dear friends, is not just a patient. It's a person before being a patient, a human being. And you must have this virtue of tenderness accompanying all the other virtues that are necessary to be a physician or a healthcare giver. But please do not take away this tenderness. It can be overwhelming for you too as feeling, but at the end of the day, in my opinion, from my, by my experience in Haiti, I prefer to cry with who's crying and not just turn away and then being overwhelmed afterwards and not know what to do. At least I cried with someone. I shared in the feelings of someone. I shared their pain. And that makes the other person feel important anyway, that that person counts, that that person exists and is recognized and is loved. And you can learn a lot of lessons from the past, not just scientifically, not just as what protocols apply, but we can learn from the, there are a lot of lessons of the, from the past also on how to uh, treat one another. There have been so many great examples in the past and also things to not repeat. But unfortunately, uh, as it seems today, we're repeating some same mistakes. It seems like we're hard kind of to, we're hard, of, um, hard to learn our lessons. So what ethical guidance for COVID-19? Even if we know that we cannot always guarantee healing or a cure, we can and must always care for the living. First thing, trust yourselves. You have everything you need to face the situation. Your physicians, your nurses, your healthcare givers, trust yourselves. Do not be afraid. Be tender. Do not be afraid of being tender. Be compassionate, be kind to the patients and to one another. We're all in stress. Stress of what also, because we think of what can happen in our homes. Rely always on ethics as your compass. It what guides you. It doesn't tell you exactly where you're going, but you know if you're going north, south, southeast, southwest, northwest, west, east. It helps you keep the direction. It helps you keep that steady hand. Respect the inherent and normative dignity of all patients, of all persons. Provide access to medical care for all in a community, not just for some. Advocate for and serve the needs of the poor and vulnerable of a community. And responsibly steward limited medical resources by accounting for the medical benefits and burdens to a patient 
as well as the burdens imposed to a community. Catholic ethics invite medical facilities to provide special attention and care for poor and vulnerable persons who often been excluded from receiving care. And this is also at the global level. I'm not just looking now here at the United States where that is happening, but I'm looking a little more at a global level. What is happening, and we'll see this in a few slides, what is happening, for example, in countries like Haiti or in other countries of the continent of Africa. And this applies to the vulnerable groups mentioned in Directive 3 of the, this, this is the, the ethics uh, religious directives of the, uh, the Conference of Catholic Bishops here in the States, such as persons who are undocumented, persons suffering from homelessness, members of racial minorities, and persons with physical and mental disabilities. Rationing of care should be conducted on a case-by-case -case basis. This method, so you really don't have to change a lot. And I am really convinced of the case-by-case -case basis because this method is far superior to an abstract or blanket method of rationing, which categorizes individuals into groups such as, for example, uh, those over 65 years old. A facilities ethics committee should be engaged in rationing decisions to the degree that is possible. And I say that to the degree that is possible because uh, it's good that there is a triage team. It's good that there's an ethical committee, but at the end of the day, those who are finally, especially in, in, uh, in very emergent, uh, I mean, the situations of emergency where you don't have time, uh, you, as, especially as uh, ICU uh, healthcare um, professionals, uh, I compare you to a pilot with the plane that uh, his engines are on fire. Uh, you can have from the, you know, a landing committee tell you what to do, what not to do, give you suggestions. But at the moment you have the plane in your hands and you have to make the ultimate decision what to do. And uh, the people in the plane have to trust you. And what you're doing by guiding that plane is not to save the plane but you're gonna do everything to save those lives, whatever it will cost. And many times you will not have a right, wrong decision, but you'll have the best decision that you can make in that moment according to your skills and to according to your calculations to what you, what you can expect. And you just have to make the decision. And don't worry, it's not a right or wrong there. You have to trust yourself because the patient trusts you. Imagine what, at the same time, what a grave responsibility is on you, but what a beautiful thing that people trust you in your decisions. They literally put their existence into your hands. And it's so beautiful because it has so much responsibility. And because it has so much responsibility, it is so beautiful. 
Scarce resources should be distributed according to the expected medical benefit of the patient. I'm sure that you, these things that I'm going to say, no, you already know them. You probably read them on so many articles every day. There's webinars, uh, podcasts, and articles coming out. I'm just going to go through them very quickly. Uh, patients who are most likely to benefit medically from an intervention should be prioritized for their treatment. Uh, non-medical factors such as age, physical or mental disability, nationality, race, ethnicity, uh, criminal history, and medical insurance status should not be accounted for the distributional analysis. Um, I just heard from a friend of mine that Ohio State has 48 ventilators and 46 of them are prisoners. Uh, ventilators should not be rationed based on categorical Categorical exclusions, such as a patient age, disability, for example, being paraplegic, or other secondary traits, but rather on the basis of clinical data, including likelihood of survival, organ function, and other clinically relevant medical data or test results. Various medical scoring tools can be used to objectively evaluate this information about a patient's status and to make comparisons among patients. Catholic approach rejects the quality of life of a patient as a criterion for the allocation of scarce medical resources. Why? Because of their e equal inert dignity, the physically and mentally disabled should have equal access to scarce medical resources as the non-disabled. In practice, the deprioritization of patients with comorbidities in the rationing of certain interventions, such as ventilators, will result from the patient's inability to receive substantial benefit from the futile intervention, and not from the fact that the patient suffers from an alleged low quality of life or has a physical or mental disability. We're not called to admit a judgment. If two clinically similar patients arrive at the emergency room, the allocation of a ventilator to one patient over another can be done on a first-come, first-served basis, a lottery or another randomized approach, if the two patients are in very similar situations. And it's generally immoral to take away without consent the ventilator of a patient still in need, or, I mean, still in need of it, in order to give it to another patient who may die without it. So what do you do? Well, in situations where a patient on a ventilator is clearly deteriorating and where COVID-19 and its complication can reasonably be expected to cause the patient's death, even with continued ventilator support. Dialogue, when possible, should be initiated with the patient or his designated healthcare agent to obtain consent to remove the ventilator. Informed consent helps resolve nearly every problematic angle of the ventilator rationing process. But what is informed consent? It's not just signing a piece of paper. It's not just understanding with my brain. The informed consent should be that whoever gives it is also really sharing, and again, here comes tenderness, also not just your tenderness towards the patient, but also the tenderness of the patients towards you making the difficult decision, their proxies towards you making the difficult decision. They also should be called to understand and be compassionate also with you because when you're going to leave and make that tough decision, it will be with you. It will not go away. You can ignore it, but it's not going to go away. 
And so it's important when it's possible to have an informed consent to really have the person, the, the person or their families or whoever is responsible for them engage deeply also with their feelings because feeling together is part of a healing process. And sure, scoring tools can be used to decide which patient's healthcare agent should be approached first. And attention must always remain focused on establishing and maintaining honest and open communication with the patient, family, and the healthcare agent throughout difficult triage situations. Um, obviously, when patients, you know, um, patients relinquish their ventilator in triage situation or cannot be given a ventilator due to the lack of availability, should anyway receive always care and uh, the care can go not just it's not just palliative care it's also spiritual care we should make these things available because the patient may be not have the luxury to have a thirty thousand dollar ventilator to save him uh, or to be but there are so many other things that we can allow following the protocols and that won't be so expensive. I'm going to a nursing home three times a week. I, the nursing home couldn't afford it. I bought the materials and I had friends also send me materials, masks, guns, hazmat suits, trying to give spiritual care. It's the only thing left for these people. And it costs much less than a ventilator. And I see how this has a beautiful effect and a positive effect also on the caregivers because they don't feel alone either. COVID-19 has imposed social distance, but I say something, I don't like the social distance. As I said before, I like to call it physical distance because we've been for too long socially distant from one another, actually. COVID-19 has just made it explicit I would say made it official somehow. But we were unfortunately socially distant. And actually this virus is bringing us closer than what we thought. It's making us long for that closeness. So it's not just about scarce resources, protocols, guidelines, frameworks, technology insights, all very important because at the end of the day, we have, we, we have, we must, and we will defeat this virus as we defeated so many others in the past. God has created us in a way with, a, with an intelligence and we will be able to defeat this. But we also have to, the rationing has to happen with tenderness. Because in other countries where things, where you think that it never could be worse, like Haiti, uh, things are starting to get worse. The, an article two days ago on BBC, an article yesterday on New York Times, today on the Nouvelist, which is a, a, a Haitian newspaper, is showing the threat, how it's really arriving. And they expect in the next few weeks, a really big hit. And they don't have our resources. We're talking a country that has been continuously devastated. If you know this history of Haiti, it's practically a country that has been constituted by slaves that we brought away from Africa. It's been full of civil wars, dictators, earthquakes, cholera, hurricanes. It seems like it never ends. And now in these last days too, political instability. 
And normally, this is normally, not just now for COVID-19, this is normally, unfortunately. The, the, what is abnormal here, what is extraordinary here in Haiti, unfortunately, is ordinary. Most Haitians lack access to clean water, let alone soap, and many live in tightly packed slums where self-isolation is physically impossible. Imagine having social distance done in Haiti. We've been delivering water for years, and these days even more. And imagine not being able to wash your hands. We rush to we rush to the, to the grocery store to get all the 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 the, the paper the, um, the toilet paper that we can because we go just crazy for that. People do not have a lot of people around the world do not have clean water to wash their hands, and their immune system is very weak because they already suffer so many other diseases. The protests of a government corruption shut down the country last fall, barricading roads and crippling the already fragile economy, leaving even fewer people with enough resources to quarantine. The nation's healthcare system is so threadbare that Haitians regularly die of easily treatable ailments like diarrhea. And public hospitals often have to charge patients for basics like syringes and gloves. But we continue to take care with tenderness. We allow those lives. I've, I've, and I must say that the six years in Haiti have touched my heart, have tendered my heart. And uh, we continue to take care despite all the adversities. We continue to take care with tender, tenderness and in a creative way, the best way we can. We know we, we too know can, we cannot suffer so many people. In this situation, we're suffering because you're not able to put someone on a ventilator because you don't have enough ventilators. I suffered for six years to see children who die for a simple flu, for a diarrhea. Celebrating mass every morning with at less from 10 to 15 bodies, 60% of those bodies, children under the age of two. Living in the hospital and listening to women cry, delivering or losing their child. And I've learned to distinguish the cry of a woman when she's delivering or when she's losing her child. And when she's losing her child, it really breaks your heart. You're touched. And it makes you human. It makes you tender. It makes you compassionate makes you feel and what do we do with the scarce resources of this and this pandemic really reveals how another thing that should be addressed is not just public health but global health you try to do basic health care education particularly in the slum areas we continue to provide buckets to people and delivering water and Clorox in the slum areas so that at least try to do something, make them understand how important it is to keep safe as far as they can. We continue to take care of people in the remote areas, trying to teach them how to keep social distance and why it is so important. We don't have, unfortunately, the richer countries are, have, uh, are not allowing 
a lot of equipments to leave their countries, obviously, because they need them for their own healthcare systems. So you become creative and you start making masks out of bathrobes. St. Luke Foundation, we, we've been making 15,000 masks for people to be delivered. As far as we can, we create awards specific for COVID patients, knowing that we only have one ventilator. Knowing that unfortunately, just a few weeks ago, um, our, um, our production center of oxygen, because we have our own for our two hospitals, broke down. And the technician who's from the United States cannot come down because of the restrictions of travel. But we'll continue to take care with great minds and tender hearts. Thank you. Thank you, Father Enzo. Um, just wanted to reach out. Does anyone have any uh, any questions? You know, I, as you mentioned, you kind of make the best decision you can with the information that you have at the time, um, use, utilizing those kind of foundations um, for the decision making, and really uh, not looking back and questioning your own, you know. Um, well-trained, you know, well-experienced um, and thought-out judgment. Um, I mean, that's personally helped me, and I, um, and I know you live it on a, you know, lived it on a daily basis in in Haiti, living in the hospital, kind of experiencing those um, issues. But I, um, kind of curious about some of the our uh, audience's thoughts and or feelings on that matter. Um, you know, when, when dealing with this, you know, for the first time or um, kind of how they cope with it. Sure. Thank you, Mike. All right. Well, if, uh, <laughs> Hello. I just, can you hear me? Yes. Yes. So this is Anna Lass. I'm a pediatric pulmonologist. Um, I'm originally from Panama, so I was going to make a comment on that. Um, and I was going to say that for the last few weeks, um, seeing patients, I feel like you're right that it reminds me of working in areas where there is a lot more limited resources and perhaps I would say that I've never seen so many people thankful for what we're doing as I have in the last few weeks. It's like it's changed the interaction to a point, you know, between um, patients and, and doctors in the U.S. And, and I don't know if anybody else has felt that. Like people are thankful for just the simple fact that we are reaching out to them and doing a visit via Zoom or, um, you know, just the fact that we're caring and, and doing things. Um, and, and I had the opportunity to walk somebody through how to make a spacer out of a soda bottle, which obviously I learned a long time ago. Um, but, you know, how happy the mom was that I was able to teach her how to do that um, because she could do it, you know, and she had a 
bottle at home, so it's something easy. And I would say in normal times, they would have not, I don't think they would have appreciated that um, skill. So, I mean, there's some, I, I do think that it brings um, some humanity to the whole interaction. So true. Thank you, Anna. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, it does kind of bring to the forefront, you know, the humanity of the situation. And uh, despite the isolation, I feel like in many ways you have more uh, kind of connection in a lot of different um, uh, ways as well. It's kind of the irony of, of it all. Um, the uh, Father Enzo, there's a one question um, yes. uh, from Dr. John that says, thank you for a wonderful talk. As human beings, we consider ourselves superior to other members of the animal kingdom. We don't think much about destroying non-medical resources such as forests, uh, which are valuable to birds and animals. What are th the theological Catholic ethics teachings and your views about applying the cardinal virtues of prudence and justice and tenderness to other living creatures. And so she's really curious about the, what Catholic ethic teaching is, uh, you know, addresses this. Yes, well, um, uh, thank you for that question actually, because um, I'm actually working on my, my, uh, my, my thesis will be actually on integral ecology. Um, Pope Francis has um, insisted, if you're interested in this, actually I invite you to read his encyclical Laudato Si which is really the care of creation, the care of our common home. And um, those, you're right. Yes, we are not treating everything uh, as we should. Um, and actually, because I think that we would, be, we would really be superior at the moment that we really treat how everything and everyone should be treated because we're everything is interconnected for me it's amazing like in these days that um COVID-19 has imposed this this halt I mean to see dolphins in the Venice canals uh to see birds singing in 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 on Fifth Avenue uh I mean it's just amazing how nature is kind of reclaiming it's kind of almost telling us you know everyone please stop you know you're destroying your own home and you're destroying yourselves and we really have to recuperate our, our, our harmony with all of creation because we're all interconnected. And uh, that's, and, and if, if we, because even when we destroy, like, like you're mentioning, like forests or the seas and everything, we're actually destroying the lives of the poor. Those who always will pay the consequence are also the poor because we absorb, every, I mean, just a few countries absorb everything. And we're imposing certain ways of living to everyone. So, uh, yes, I would invite you to uh, read Laudato Si, uh, written by Pope Francis. It's all on the care of the common home that is creation. And it shows this new, really, not new, but it's kind of, in, it follows up like the, the whole concept that St. Francis of Assisi had, especially regarding, you know, the, the creation where St. Francis actually calls the sun brother, calls the moon sister, calls the sea sister. With everything around us, it's all our brothers and sisters. And I think that is something that, um, yes, Pope Francis has been 
putting a lot into evidence, but I must say that there is a lot of resistance to it, especially in the um, uh, here in the United States, I would say. It's not, it, this encyclical came out, but it kind of stayed under under the ashes still, but it's, uh, it will mark us theologically uh, in a very strong way, the future also of the church and of, I think of all society. Great. And I think a lot of what you say are, um, you know, themes and, and lessons that uh, are embodied in so many of the world's religions as, as well, but, um, and are applicable in all these scenarios. And it, but I think it's absolutely um, fascinating to get your uh, perspective, given your history and, um, and experience. And uh, this is yeah, a wonderful discussion and, and thank you so much for your time. And, oh, thank uh, you for the invitation. Uh, it was an honor for me to be uh, with you and, and um, uh, it, it was great. Thank you so much for inviting me uh, and I really uh, wish you all the best and I'll pray for each one of you. I really will. God okay. bless you really, everyone. And if there's anyone who is uh, Muslim, uh, uh, Ram uh, Ramadan uh, Mubarak. Happy right. Ramadan. All right, wonderful. All right, thank you, Father Enzo. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Bye bye.